With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good afternoon. It's Friday, July 8th, and this is Chick Fitzgerald. And it is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Kelly McDonald. Kelly, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> Why don't you give us a little thumbnail on yourself before we dig into talking about your book? Sure, no problem. Uh, thanks for having me. I am the president of McDonald Marketing, which is a full-service marketing and advertising firm in Dallas, Texas. And I've lived in Dallas for 25 years with my husband. We don't uh, we don't have any children. Um, I just have a bouncing baby business. And I'm currently calling in uh, for this conference from Montana, where I am on what I would call a workcation. <laughs> so I'm doing a little work, but I'm doing it from lovely Montana, which is a very nice break from the sizzling Texas heat. And I'm also the author of the book, How to Market to People Not Like You, Know It or Blow It Rules for Reaching Diverse Customers. Well, great. Well, I am just so happy to have you on. And and, uh, as I take a look at at your book, uh, one of the things I always like to share with our listeners, because we do have quite a few people who, who download our show uh, on demand and you know don't have the benefit of being here on the phone with you is basically how the book is structured and and who did you write it for so why don't we start with that what what prompted you to actually uh you know jump off the precipice uh called becoming an author and and who who were you thinking about when you wrote this book sure um it's a great question i actually had a very unusual book writing experience um because I actually got a call from Wiley, my publisher, and they had found me, because I do a lot of professional speaking on the subject of diversity marketing, they had found me through the National Speakers Association website, and they had found my topic called How to Market to People Not Like You, which is probably the most popular topic that I have for professional speaking. And I got a call from a senior editor there one day, and he said, I saw this topic, and I thought it was a really cool name, and I thought it would make a really great book. And do you have a book? And I said, no. And he said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, no, who's got time? I'm running a business. Right. And so we got talking about what I meant by marketing to people not like you. So after we spent several hours on the phone that day and over the course of six weeks, they extended a book offer to me. And I don't know a whole lot about the book industry because this is my first book, but I do know that that is a very unusual way that it happens. I guess most people (laughs) typically write a book and then they are begging publishers to try to talk to them. So mine was kind of the reverse process. But I wrote it for the small business owner or marketing manager, let's say, at a small to medium-sized company. It's not written for the person who is the VP of marketing at Procter & Gamble. Those people have tons of resources at their disposal, lots of ad agencies, lots of marketing firms, lots of consultants. What I try to do is write a book for the small business owner or the local marketing manager, let's say of a bank, who might need all the – whose job it is to do the marketing for um, a company or an organization, but they're not necessarily an expert in diversity marketing, and they really need some guidance. And so it's a very simple step-by-step 
book that has the seven steps for marketing to diverse customers. And I just want to say, Chicky, that this is a really important uh, point, I think, which is that when you say the word diversity, not you, anyone, I think most people default to racial and ethnic diversity, and, and that's right. important, and I absolutely address that in my book. But I'm a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Irish girl, and I specialize in marketing, and my definition of diversity marketing is any way that you can be different from me. Right. So an example that I often use to kind of really illustrate that point is if you're a parent and I'm not, we're going to be very, very different. You're going to have totally different priorities and pressures on you. You're going to spend money differently. You're going to make decisions differently, et cetera. And so that's ha- that has nothing to do with racial or ethnic diversity. That has nothing to do with gender. That has nothing to do with age or generational differences. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with parenthood. Uh, excuse me, parenthood versus non-parenthood. So my book tackles diversity marketing from the standpoint of any small business owner or company can expand their customer base beyond the customers that they're currently getting by thinking outside the box and thinking, who's the customer that we're not getting but should be? And maybe that customer is um, a military veteran. Maybe that customer is a vegetarian. Maybe that customer group is new moms, you know, whatever it might be. But that's my definition of diversity. Well, that that's really really helpful, and I, I I couldn't help but think though, as you were describing the audience uh, for this, that you know there are so many big companies who have marketed to a single customer set for so mm-hmm. long, and were you know successful in their own right doing that. Um, a great example is the travel industry that that many mm-hmm. many of our egg members are a part of. Uh, the travel industry as a whole has marketed to the air traveler, and right. you know they they assume that people are flying in and and magically landing in you know Missouri or uh, you know landing at a city where they need a hotel or where they're departing on a cruise. And only 15% of all Americans fly. Yet we've got an entire mm-hmm. industry structured around. Uh, and I won't say the wrong premise because it's been a very but lucrative. A small premise percentage for a long of the time. total market. Right, but but the thing is, even these big companies, many of them are doing way more with less. And they're also hurting more because there's so much uh, pull of their customer, uh, you know, that they, they kind of own them before and other people are, are you know, n- niching away at them. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that while you did write it for, for that smaller audience, I think, you know, and a lot of our egg members do work for larger companies, but almost everybody is doing way, way, way more with way less. Uh, which is why right, we don't right. have as many people on our calls as we used to. Is you know they're doing the jobs of two and three people. So let's dive mm-hmm. right into the book. You've you've separated it into a couple of parts, but mm-hmm. in in the beginning you introduce by saying you can't reach a customer that you don't understand, and so Correct. you start out with part one being seven steps for selling to new and unfamiliar customers. So talk to us about getting out of that comfort zone. And and how do you begin that process of figuring out how to grow beyond what you're comfortable with? I think that the the hardest thing is to actually get out of the comfort zone because trying new things is always scary. When when business is good, why would you want to try new things? Obviously, whatever you're doing is working, so just keep on keeping you know keep on keeping on. If business is bad, it's even more scary to try new things because now you're going to try new things and if they don't work very well, now you've just blown your budget and now you don't have any more resources and it didn't even work. So people get paralyzed, I think, and they get stuck in these ruts of 
just doing whatever they've either always done or their boss expects or their shareholders, you know, et cetera. And I think that that's fine because any company is obviously surviving and, and moving forward, but that, the way to grow is to actually expand your customer base. And right. so getting out of the comfort zone is really important because you've got to actually consciously take that step of, of, of assessing your business and saying who's the customer that we're not getting but we should be. And, you know, a great example of, of getting out of the comfort zone is, you know, is Nike with the, with the way back when, the Just Do It campaign. You know, they're, they're selling an athletic shoe, and they could have sold it to, you know, absolutely everybody who does any kind of exercise, but they narrowed in on a certain mindset of a person who thought, I don't need to be told why I need to work out. I have my own reasons for working out, and they're personal. Everybody works out for different reasons. Some people work out for stress relief. Some people work out for weight management. Some people work out because it's the only time they get to be alone, you know, whatever, or the only right. time they get to be outside. And they built an entire amazing campaign around the premise of just do it. You know, you have your reasons for exercising. You don't need us to tell you that this shoe is going to make you faster or stronger, you know, or a better athlete. It's not any of that. It's, you know, that you're an adult and you can make your own decisions about working out, so just do it. And right. that was a big step, and I think that's a great example of, of a campaign that everybody can relate to about getting out of their comfort zone And because no, no other athletic shoe company had ever done anything like that. All the, all the shoe marketing for athletic shoes was always about performance or making the athlete better, and Nike took a complete departure from that and said, right. what about people who aren't even athletes? <laughs> you know, what about the person who just wants to walk around their block and get a little exercise? Don't we have something to say to them? Exactly. So that's, exactly. that's really what goes into the first step in terms of getting out of the comfort zone. And sometimes it means, you know, of course, fighting your, your, corporate, uh, your corporate entities. You know, one of the examples I give in the book is I was uh, a judge on a panel of, you know, advertising campaigns, and I saw this advertising campaign for an accounting firm, and it was business-to-business marketing. So they're marketing their accounting firm to other firms that might need accounting services. And all the marketing materials had a picture of the building on it, and then inside, you know, the brochures, a picture of the founder. And I thought to myself, who's going to hire you because of the building that you work in? Right. And what about this, what about this founder? I'll bet, I'll bet he's not even around anymore, or if he is, he's certainly not going to be the person working on my business. So to me, that was probably a, a poor marketing manager who had an egomaniacal boss, and so they took the easy, safe way of saying, well, you know, I know my boss will love it if I put a p- picture of the building on the brochure and put a picture of him or her inside, but that's, that, that didn't say anything. There was no value to it. There was no value statement at all. It was just ego marketing. Right. So how do you get to know that customer that you're not getting to, but you, you should be? I think that the best way to get to know some uh, a new customer group is to research that market. And by that, you know, it can certainly start with online research by researching what's available online. There's a certain wealth of information available for pretty much any consumer group you could possibly want. You could read articles, consumer insights. But I'm also a big fan of getting out and talking to people. And it can be in an informal or a formal fashion. A formal fashion would be things like a focus group or a survey Mm -hmm. to find out what that consumer wants, what they need, what their concerns are, et cetera. And informally, you can do this by attending certain events, groups, gatherings or meetings of those individuals and talking to people there and expressing interest in them 
and what they're about. The, the consumer insights that can come from that are, are tremendous. Um, a quick example of this is we were working with a life insurance company, and I think that most of us know that if you have life insurance or someone that you love has life insurance and then something happens to that person, the beneficiaries of that life insurance policy get a check. And what you do with that check is your business. You could go spend it on your mortgage, you could take a vacation, you could play the lottery, you can provide for your children's education, et cetera. But in this particular example with this life insurance client that we were working with, they were targeting the Hispanic market. So we did some consumer focus groups with Hispanic men who are most likely to be the breadwinners for their family and therefore they need to be the person who is insured. And one of the consumer insights that came out of all of the focus groups over and over and over again that blew me away was these men who were mostly immigrants from uh, Latin American countries would always, they totally got life insurance. They understood that they needed to protect their family and they thought life insurance was a great idea. But one of the questions came up over and over and that was, can I use the money or can my family use the money if something happens to me to ship my body back to Mexico or to ship my body back home to wherever, whatever country I came from? And as we're sitting there observing this focus group, I thought, wow, that's a huge consumer insight that, that never would have occurred to me on my own. Right. But listening to this consumer, it was clearly very important to them to be buried in their motherland. And so, as I said, all of us know that you can do anything you want with the, mar- with the money that you would receive from a life insurance policy, but what it did was it, it changed our messaging. So when we were developing the communication platform for that particular client, we ended up using that consumer insight in all of our messaging and saying, you're going to want to protect you know, your family. You've worked so hard. Protect your family. A life insurance policy would allow you to send your children to college, help with you know, daily expenses and paying your mortgage, and even ship your body back to your you know, home country. And that's a huge consumer insight that we would never have gotten if we hadn't just talked to people. Right. You know, one of the interesting things, and, and we, we don't do uh, original research in our firm, but we, we do get involved with our clients and, and typically with their research vendor. And what always amazes me, though, is is the propensity to rely on research for things that people can't even possibly envision. It would be like uh, we use the example of going to the 50s housewife and, you know, you've got this thing in your mind, which which is actually a microwave. But how how do you get her from the place of, you know, taking two or three hours to, you know, get all the ingredients together to prepare dinner to help her understand how she could spend more time with her family, you know, when she right. can't even envision how technology could in, intervene in that. And mm-hmm. and so I think, you know, a lot of traditional companies who do rely on research, you know, get get tied up in the fact that, well, nobody said they needed that. Well, they right. didn't even know <laughs> they could ask. And right. and I think that's one of the You don't know what you don't know. Right. And so that gets around to products and surface offerings, which is, is really what you address in the next chapter. So what do they need? How do you have to tweak your product or service offering? And again, just using our travel example, if you've got hoteliers today, who of course they can handle people who drive or who fly, but how do you market to them differently? How do you tweak your product if you've got somebody right. driving in versus flying in? Right. And I think that's a great example, or or taking the train in. Um you know, one way that using the travel industry, and I think uh, this is a, a fascinating example, is Amtrak. You know, and Amtrak was in was in deep trouble just a few years ago in our country. I mean, really deep financial trouble. And they really pulled out of it. 
And one of the reasons is they've identified that there's a whole new market for them, which is young people, whereas in the past their core audience has been older people who are typically retired because they have the time to take the leisurely travel method of train. Well, the reason that they're finding that young people are gravitating uh, toward Amtrak is because of the connectivity. They do not want to have to turn off their cell phones. They do not want to have to turn off their iPads. They do not want to have to turn off their computers. They want to be able to stay connected. So why not take the train from Washington, D.C. to New York City, where I can continue to work and stay in touch with my friends for two and a half hours versus hopping the flight? And I think that's a great example of tweaking, uh, you know, a product or service is um, they are really actively promoting the fact that you don't have to turn off your electronic communication uh, gadgets when you take the train. Um, you know, another another great tweak for the travel industry that I that I've read about and heard about is uh, Chinese consumers, Chinese tourists specifically, spend more money on shopping than any other racial, ethnic, or tourist group that's uh, identified. They spend more mm-hmm. money on shopping. So they make wonderful, wonderful tourists, and everybody wants the Chinese tourists because they're going to spend a lot of money. Well, in China, hotels are usually equipped with unlimited green tea and uh, chopsticks at every meal, even Western meals. So right. if a hotel wanted to put the welcome mat out for the Chinese tourist, then why wouldn't you want to tweak your product or service offering to give them what they've come to expect in their home country? Why wouldn't you want to give them unlimited green, green tea? Why wouldn't Absolutely. you want to give them Chinese uh, electronic adapters because their gadgets that they're going to have are going to be wired for Chinese outlets, not U.S. outlets. What a and great, so these are you know, some simple story. things that don't cost a whole lot of money, but actually when you start thinking about a new target group and you say, what do we have to do to change to actually work with this consumer group? What do we have to tweak? Um, there's, you know, um, shopping at Sam's, there's, there's an example in my book called Shop at Sam's, Get a Loan. And I think everybody knows Sam's, uh, Sam's Warehouse Club stores, you know. And right. fascinating piece of research that I read that showed that they had done a survey of their members. And most people go there for, you know, toilet paper and cat litter and, you know, all these you know, groceries and stuff. Well, one of the things that they found was that, like, 75% of their members were small business owners. Well, then when they dug down a little deeper and they asked these small business owners, Do you, have you ever needed a small business loan? Many of them said yes, and they needed very, very small loans. They needed loans like $10,000, $15,000, right. They didn't need a quarter of a million dollars. Well, lenders are not really lending loans that small. It's not worth even the paperwork for them to do it. Right. And lending standards have become very, very tight. So SAMS has started doing small business loans for their members. So since when does Sam's get into the lending business? So what a great product tweak that is because it's a complete and natural supplement to what they're already doing and the customer that they're already getting, but now they can sell them additional services. Definitely. So, you know, we've talked about products. So so what about the service side and, and having your salespeople understand the differences in, in markets? Because, you know, again, people on the product marketing side will, will go through all of those things, but then rolling it out to the front line uh, is often where things fail. So you, you talk about little things making a big difference. Give us some examples mm-hmm. of that. The, the, the number one thing that I recommend to all of our clients and any reader of the book or any business person at all is to really focus on what I call operational readiness. And once you've identified this new customer that you can get 
or you've identified a new service that you can sell your existing customers, you actually have to think about, are we really set up to do business and service this person? Are we operationally ready and operationally friendly? And Uh by that I mean operationally ready is going to entail the things that you must do to make sure that your customer can do business with you. Maybe it's staying open later. Maybe it's opening earlier. Maybe it's... um, uh, you know, putting signage up in your place of business in another language if that's important to a consumer group, et cetera. Uh, maybe it's having a toll-free number, things like that. But operational friendliness is just as important, and it's, it's much more nuanced. Operational friendliness makes me feel like I'm on, in the right place if I'm doing business with you. Right. And that can be as subtle as the level of friendliness that I feel from your employees, the way that they're dressed, um, the products and service that, services that you offer. So when we look at operational, operational readiness or operational friendliness, a, a great example that I can give you is in Dallas, there is a major headquartered store there called the Container Store, and they mm-hmm. sell every conceivable type of storage solution you could possibly want. It's, it's innovative, uh, it's not inexpensive, but they have a storage solution for every need in the world. Well, I could live there. <laughs> I know. I love that store. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful place. And um, uh, several years ago, they opened a flagship store in Manhattan. And that's a brilliant, brilliant move because people who live in major cities like Tokyo or London or Manhattan typically have much smaller residences. They're extremely pressed for space, and they really need storage solutions. So it makes perfect strategic sense that the container store would open a flagship store in Manhattan. That way you can maximize your closet space, your kitchen space, et cetera. Well, within the first 12 hours of them being open, they realized two operational readiness issues that they had never thought of. And the first one was all the customers were coming in, flocking in, buying tons of stuff, and as they were checking out, they were asking, do you have a bag with handles? And the container store is like, handles? But, of course, everyone in New York walks. People right. don't have cars. And so in Texas, where I live and where they're, they're headquartered, you just grab your bag of stuff and you take it outside to your SUV or your car and you put it in right. and you drive home. But people in New York don't live that way. They walk exactly. down the street, and so consequently you're not going to walk down the street carrying a bag in your arms. You're going to carry it in, a, in, in your hands with handles. It's much more comfortable. So they suddenly realized that they, that's an operational friendliness thing. They still have the right products, the right prices for their consumers, But from an operational friendliness, they didn't understand how New Yorkers live. The second thing that they didn't realize was that people in New York will pay for delivery even on the smallest item. They'll pay $15 or $20 for delivery of a $10 item. Why? Mm -hmm. Because, once again, they don't have cars. So if I buy a big box, a huge box, because I'm going to ship Chickie a huge gift, I'm going to ship her a pony, (laughs) I need a huge box. (laughs) How do I get that box in a taxi? How do I get that box down the street? I can't carry it. I can't put it in a taxi. So people are very accustomed in New York to having everything delivered. They're used to delivery. They're used to paying for delivery. And the container store didn't have a delivery system. Once again, that has nothing to do with really the product staff, but it has to do with operational friendliness. And so right. they learned, you know, uh, trial and error, um, about these tor- sort of lifestyle issues. And I think that's a great example of operational re- readiness and operational friendliness kind of rolled into one. And being, making sure that you're actually ready to serve the customer that you're trying to get. In this case, they were ready for many aspects of that customer, but on two, two key areas, they were not. Right, right. 
When you uh, made your introduction, you started talking about all of the different kinds of audiences uh, that really make up this whole topic of diversity. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when when you're developing marketing messages, you, you really do have to do that based on the value system of, of the people who are listening. So talk to us mm-hmm. a little bit about the language of marketing. Hey, that's the language of marketing book, in terms by the of way. Their, their values? <laughs> yes. Particularly in terms of their values? Yes. I guess what I mean by that is it's not necessarily about a language that someone speaks or about the color of a person's skin or the shape of their eyes, but what I believe is that what makes you you is what you value. And if I can tap into what you value, then I will tap into your heart and mind. And if I can tap into your heart and mind, I will tap into your wallet. So if I know, for example, that a woman homeschools her child, that tells me so much more about that woman than her age, her sex, her income, what zip code she lives in, any of that other demographic stuff that marketers typically use. And I'm not saying ditch the demographics. I mean, they play a very, very important role in identifying you know, consumer groups. But I don't think that they tell the whole picture. So if I know that you are, again, that woman who homeschools their child, that's going to tell me a whole lot about your values. And those values tend to permeate much more than simply your child's education. They're going to permeate, they're, they're going to be reflective of uh, core values that you have regarding perhaps religion, politics, you know, a way of life and the way that you right. want your family raised. Um, same thing with, let's say, a person who is extremely devoted to the environment or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, recycling. Well, once again, that might be something that you value, but the fact that you're recycling is just one manifestation of that. That value that you put on the environment is going to drive many, many actions and decisions than just the fact that you recycle your bottles and cans. It might mean that you value more natural products, that you prefer more organic foods. I mean, there's certain correlations you can make to these types of things. And so the, the language that I prefer for marketing is to try to get into what the consumer values. What do they care about? What do they fear? What do they want? What do they hope for? And that, I think, is going to provide far greater marketing insight and therefore more effective marketing messages than just relying on traditional demographic definitions. Great, great. So that's a a natural to lead into your your next topic, which is about using technology uh, to do micro-targeting. Because if if you Mm -hmm. are going to uh, tweak your marketing messages, you have to have a technology that's going to allow you to deliver that message to the right audience at the right time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, if you know that, uh, once again, in in the spirit of the Amtrak example with them reaching young people who, you know, absolutely want to stay connected and will make decisions about their transportation based on that one thing, then clearly the way to reach that individual and to say, choose Amtrak, we've got all these different um, options for you to get from point A to point B, and guess what? You can stay connected and you can be comfortable, et cetera. Well, the way that you're going to get that message across to that individual is not through a brochure, and it's certainly not through traditional uh, advertising mechanisms because that audience isn't there. What you're going to want to do is you know, do text messaging, mobile apps, et cetera, and, and rely heavily on social media and social networking. Same thing conversely with you know an older person who's not into technology. You'd want to tailor... The, the method of the delivery for the message to the right audience. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of technology tools out there that 
the small business owner, you know, marketing director of a local company or pretty much anybody can use that don't cost a whole lot of money. They may, t- they may take some time. Right. I think social media and marketing is a great example of something that doesn't cost a whole lot of money, but it does take labor to do oh, yeah. it correctly. It can suck a lot of time. Absolutely, and, and time is money. But in this day and age when there's a lot of pressure on marketing budgets, it's still a godsend. Mm-hmm. You know, and the other thing that I tell my clients and, and my audiences is, much of the social media stuff is free right now, but I don't believe it will be forever. Right. So it really is an effective tool right now because there's so much pressure on marketing budgets and people are looking for cost-effective solutions. And, and that's a great way to, to reach a lot of people and to reach people through other people and letting other people do the work for you. You know, if I know that I can share something with Chicky and Chicky has a huge network, then I'm reaching all of those people that I would never otherwise have reached through you. So the last of the seven steps is is all about dealing with with naysayers, people who who push back when you try mm-hmm. to expand how you market your product. So what do you do right. with them? I think that the there's two types of naysayers. There's the internal person who, you know, when a marketing manager or a boss or you know a, an employee is trying to roll out a new program and saying, hey, here's an opportunity, we should go after this market. And people internally are not behind it. You've got that naysayer. You've got the person who says, well, that's stupid. We've never done that before. That's not going to work. Or why do we need to do that? The first thing you've got to do is overcome that with your own people. And what I find is that 90% of people are actually quite reasonable when they are presented with a business case for something. So when you take the emotion out of it and you simply present a business case for something and say, here's why we need to go after this market. Here's the metrics that I've been able to put to this and show that if we could get these people to do business with us, we're likely to grow our business in these ways. Here's what the plan is going to be and here's what it's going to entail and what we're going to need to do. Here's what your role is. Do you have any questions? Do you have any issues? Do you have any concerns? And having a dialogue up front with employees is very, very important. 90% of the time you're going to find that people will get on board if, in fact, they were informed and advised of of the initiative in advance. I think that a lot of times the grumbling and the naysaying comes from that hallway chatter of, you know, well, nobody ever asked me. I I, I could have told you this was a stupid (laughs) program, but they didn't ask me. Or, you know. I never heard (laughs) that before. (laughs) We've all worked in those companies. And and so what I'm saying is get ahead of that and, and ask those people and say, okay, Bob, so, Bob, you're a frontline guy. How will this affect you? What are you going to need from us right. from a resource standpoint to make you comfortable with this? It brings them in as a sponsor. And it, and it does allow you, as the uh, initiator of the initiative, to, to really address their concerns up front. And, and why wouldn't you want to know what those concerns are? Then the right. second type of naysayer is the external naysayer. It's the person who, um, I, and I live in Texas, so I'll use this example because we have a large Hispanic population in Texas. It's uh, about 40% of the population. So there's a lot of Spanish language messaging in Texas that you see everywhere, all over. And what you'll often hear clients talk about is, are we going to lose, are we going to lose our, our core customers who are non-Hispanic if we do Spanish language marketing for our bank or for our retail store, right. et cetera? Are you going to have that individual who comes in and says, well, this is America, gosh darn it, speak English. Why are, you, why are you marketing to these people who don't speak English? And what you've got to say with that naysayer is, once again, it's, it's simply about presenting the business case. You may or may not change that person's mind, but 
you'd be surprised how many stories I hear about about business owners who are confronted with that, and they will simply say, "You know what, Mr. Smith? I, you know, the language of business in the United States is typically English, but we have a significant percentage of our population here or our customer groups who actually are more comfortable in Spanish or Vietnamese or whatever it might be, and we right. want to make sure that everybody is comfortable here at the XYZ store or at the XYZ, you know, company." And so if working with them in Spanish or working with them in Vietnamese allows them to be more comfortable and to make a better uh, purchase decision, why wouldn't we want to, you know, put that out there for them as an available option? I'm fortunate enough to have someone on staff who speaks Vietnamese, you know, or Chinese or Spanish, and so I consider that a huge business asset, and, you know, my customers love it, and it makes it easier for them to do business with us. I mean, it's pretty hard to argue with the logic of that, exactly. especially when you just put it in the in the terms of it not being a political issue, but it's simply being a business issue. Right. Um, right. But the other thing that I always tell people about the naysayers is don't ever apologize. Don't ever apologize for the business decisions that you're making because it's your business, and if you feel you can grow your business by reaching out to a new market, then that's what you need to do. And you're going to do it in a you know respectful uh, way with integrity. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to apologize to your customers for your actions. You're not doing anything wrong. And some of those customers, I suppose, may take their business elsewhere. But if you look at the examples of companies, let's say, that are marketing in Spanish, I guarantee you that nobody is doing it because they're losing money. <laughs> You know, if you go into Home Depot in Texas and you see that all of the signage is in both Spanish and English, sure, I suppose there might be, I don't know, 1% or 2% of the population that will boycott Home Depot because they don't think that's right. But if you're getting 40% more customers because you are doing that, it's simple mathematics. Yep, tough to argue with. But I think you have to be unapologetic about the business decisions that are right for your business. Mm-hmm. That's great There's advice. nothing wrong with making money. As long as you're not exploiting people, there's nothing wrong with making money. Right, right. Now, the whole second part of the book could be another whole call, so we're not going to uh, go through it in, in detail, but I do want to let uh, our listeners uh, know what the book contains because it sounds like this whole second part of the book is really a marketing manual for all of the different types yes. of diversity that you're talking about, so different ages, uh, women that are both singles, head of households, working moms, stay-at-home moms, homeschooling moms, immigrants, uh, Hispanic uh, Latinos, you've got a significant section on that. African Americans, mm-hmm. uh, a large and lucrative customer base. And mm-hmm. uh, then you, you also move on to talk about uh, Asians and the Asian American uh, community, highest household mm-hmm. income of any racial or ethnic group, which is so, so mm-hmm. important. Um, and I'd like to just um, uh, go through just, again, really quickly, the, the last section of the book is about other important market segments. And, and you talked about uh, political views sexuality, uh, hobbies and special interests, rural versus metro, and then taking a look at military versus civilian and vegetarians versus meat eaters. Can you just pick out one or two stories uh, from from that whole plethora of topics that really hits home why it's so very important to uh, not always market to people like yourself? Um, Sure. I'll pick, let's see, uh, of those, I will pick... Um, I'll pick the I'll pick the gay and lesbian market. Uh, that's a, a large market and it's extremely lucrative. There's a lot of gay and lesbian couples who have 
no children, and so consequently they have a lot of disposable income. And many right. marketers, and particularly in the travel industry, have really uh, stepped up and started marketing aggressively to the gay and lesbian market because they do have disposable income to spend on a vacation. So one of the things that we see uh, with successful gay and lesbian marketing is a commitment to um, to really supporting what is what is called the community. And I think there's a great example in the book of Embassy Suites. And Embassy Suites has an ad, and there's a picture of of that ad in the book that talks uh, very subtly about Embassy Suites and the great location that they have, et cetera, and proud sport proud supporter of the community and the uh, the parade, which is, you know, the pride parade. So right. the image that's in the book uh, for the Embassy Suites, it's a very tasteful ad, it's very well done, are two pairs of legs under a sheet on a bed. And so, you know, all you see is the sheet and you see these legs from about the knee down and you see that it's actually two men's legs. And you can kind of tell by the size of the legs and the amount of hair on the legs. Right. And so without saying a word, it doesn't say, hey, gay people, come stay at the embassy suites. You know, it's much more subtle than that, but you can't possibly miss the fact that this is an ad that's targeted to to the gay and lesbian community, and it's very, very respectful. So I think that the respect is really the core issue in any marketing to to a new market. I don't care if you're marketing to vegetarians, if you're marketing to people in the military. What you have to show is not only the consumer insight that's going to make your message resonate. But you've got to show respect. Uh, it right. may or may not be a market that you understand all that well, but if it's a viable market for your business, then market respectfully you know, to that market. Um, and a, a, another example, a bad example of the gay and lesbian marketing came from a panel discussion that uh, we had at our company with uh, a group of uh, gay and lesbian respondents, and they were talking about how much they hated advertising that played off of clever or cute jokes about promiscuity and dating and all this kind of stuff. They were like, just because I'm gay or lesbian doesn't mean I'm not in a committed relationship or that I can't commit to a relationship. You know, what's this whole, like, promiscuity thing? And there's way more to me than, you know, just my sexuality. So, once again, the respect, I think, has got to come through. And uh, and I think that, you know that particular chapter has a great does a great job of of showing that with some great examples both good and bad. Well, Kelly, this has been really great and again the book is How to Market to People Not Like You, Know It or Blow It Rules for Reaching Diverse Customers. And uh, again just reading through the the table of contents which you can view on Amazon uh, will give you an idea of the richness of, of the various topics that Kelly covers. Kelly, can you tell our listeners how to best reach you? Sure. Um, they can reach me by email or by uh, phone or by Twitter. My email is kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, at mcdonaldmarketing.com. And I'm a McDonald, not a MacDonald, so it's M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D, marketing.com. Um, my Phone number is 214-880-1717. And my Twitter account is uh, Kelly C. McDonald. Uh, That's C as in cat. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, And you can find me under McDonald Marketing or Marketing to People Not Like You or Kelly McDonald. I have three different Facebook pages. But it's not hard to reach me. And for those that are executive girlfriends group members, you don't have to remember or write down any of that. You can just go on the executive girlfriends group 
private site and just search for Kelly McDonald and all of her information will be there. <laughs> it thank pays you. to be a member. Well, Kelly, thank you so much. I, I do want to give uh, the folks who are listening live a chance if they do have any questions for you. Please don't sure. forget to take your phone off mute, star six, if you've used the uh, call-in system to mute your phone. Anybody have any questions or comments? Yeah, can you speak up, Rebecca? I can hardly hear you. Okay, is that better? Much better. Much better, thank you. Okay, I just wanted to know um, how you get uh, a company started if they don't know who they're missing, Um, how they, uh, maybe they're a restaurant that doesn't know or realize that they're not getting enough vegetarians or um, uh, they're not uh, being respectful of some group and, and where they get started to uh, to to get right. How the do you how do you take that first getting. step? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question, and I think I think that possibly is the hardest step because when you have a core group, then you understand who your customer is, and so to actually challenge yourself to think, well, who could we be getting that we're not? Um, but I think that, that the key is is to think about it from the standpoint of this is the business that we're in, but how could we grow our business if we could expand it to get X person. Um, so, for example, in the book, I actually use an example of a restaurant near my home in Dallas that's called Greens, and it's spelled with a Z, you know, and it's, and it's Greens, and it's a salad restaurant, and they sell beautiful gourmet salads. Well, as you can imagine, a salad restaurant did very, very, very well with women. And as I was talking to the owners one day, I said, "How's your business?" And they said, "Oh, it's you know great with women, but we don't have very many guys." So it wasn't about saying that we needed to create, in their case, a new low-fat salad or a vegetarian salad, they identified that they could probably significantly grow their business if they could get guys. So then that identification led to, well, why aren't guys coming? And a lot of soul-searching and I think just a lot of um, honest assessment, they said, you know, we realized that our salads were too frou-frou-y. You know, they were, like, very girly. They were all, like, you know, organic peaches and pears and goat's cheese and all this kind of stuff. And guys mm-hmm. might want a salad, but they might want something that's a little more guy. So they created this really cool salad that's in a pretzel bowl, like a taco shell bowl, except it's, it's pretzels. And they replaced all the sliced chicken uh, that was normally on all their salads with sliced steak. And then they topped that off with roasted nuts, and they topped that off with a honey wheat beer vinaigrette. So you've got pretzels and steak and nuts and beer. It's like bar food. <laughs> it's like bar food, right. Yeah, and what guy isn't going to like that? And, in fact, they called it the bar nun because one of their customers had said, I love this place. You know, It feels like bar food, but it's good for me. That, to me, is a perfect example of they didn't deviate from their core business, which was salads. But by just thinking about who are we not getting and, and really doing an honest assessment of that, they identified who they were not getting and then said, well, why? And then, you know, then solve that problem. And, you know, it sounds simple, but I'm sure that there was a, a, a tremendous amount of gnashing of teeth, you know, for them to arrive at that. But I think that the, the key step is to pull back the camera lens a little bit and look at your business and say, you're not trying to change your business. You're simply trying to expand it with a new group. And don't say, well, how do we get the vegetarians? It's, it's more about who are we not getting, but we could be. So maybe we could be getting people who are younger. Maybe we could be getting people who are older. Maybe we could get people who are um, 
stay-at-home moms. Maybe we could get people who are in the military, you know, et cetera. So it's, but what would we have to do in order to attract those people? What would be the service that we would offer that would be meaningful to those people? Does that help? Yes, very much. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Anybody else? All right, terrific. Well, Kelly, thank you so, so much. You are welcome to join us any Friday. Uh, We have a a program every Friday at 4 o'clock Eastern. And next week, I believe, and Patty will jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, our guest is Adrian Ott, the author of a book called The 24-Hour Customer, New Rules for Winning in a Time-Starved, Always-Connected Economy. So... uh, With that, I'm going to turn off our recording because uh, what we say on the balance of the call is not recorded. So thank you so much again, Kelly. Thank you, Chickie. And thank you, everyone else, for listening, and I really appreciate your time today. All right. Great. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.